Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. So I'm here today with Claire Gibson. Claire is a writer based in Nashville, Tennessee, born and raised at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Claire went on to study political science and Asian studies at Furman University, where she was recruited by Teach for America to be a middle school history instructor. In 2012, she left the classroom to pursue her lifelong dream of becoming a writer. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, the Tennessean, Marie Claire, Entrepreneur Magazine, and many others. Beyond the Point is her debut novel coming out April 2nd. Welcome, Claire. That's right. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Oh, this is such a dream. So I have to say, Claire and I met by happenstance at Books or Magic Bookstore in Brooklyn when we were both there to see John Kenny and Courtney Mom talk. And I recognized Claire from Instagram and my husband introduced us. So (laughs) it was ridiculous. It's nice to be connected and everything. No kidding. I mean, I was just there that night from Nashville for that one night and I popped into Books Are Magic and then there you were and now here I am sitting in your house. It's crazy. (laughs) It's the gift of book people. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. So Beyond the Point, which as I've told you, I truly loved, could not put down, read like a movie, like went so fast Mm -hmm. and so, so many scenes just like have stayed with me completely. Um, How did you come up? I know you said it took you about four years to write. How did you come up with the idea for this book? So I wish I could say that it came to my head in some brilliant dream or something, but that's obviously not the case. This book is based on true stories of women that attended West Point during the 2000 to 2010 decade. So I grew up at West Point, like you said before, and so I had all this setting in my mind, and I lived there for about seven years in my childhood from age 10 to age 16. So the cadets there and the life there had really made a huge impact on my experience as a child. But I didn't know if I could truly write a novel set there because I wasn't a cadet. I never attended West Point. And so there were parts of that experience that I never had a chance to see, you know, behind closed doors. So in 2013, after doing some freelance writing, some women that I had known when I was in middle school and high school contacted me, and they had gone on to do great things in their military careers and careers outside of the military, and they asked if I would be interested in interviewing them. And those interviews over many, many years (laughs) turned into this novel that I'm really, really proud of, and I'm so grateful that you enjoyed enjoyed it. It was fantastic. And it's really a tale of female friendship. Right. I mean, it's about the military and the way it can sort of pervade the deepest sort of recesses of your life and your heart, but also about how these women sort of grew up together um, and how relationships sort of evolve over time. Right. That was really important to me because I grew up as a military brat, but even now when I walk into a bookstore, if I see a book with a woman in uniform on the cover, it's not necessarily the first book I'm going to go for. And so it was really important to me that this was a story about friends first and that war, as important as it is to the story, it's also kind of a backdrop. It's not the center. And I think that's true for these women that I interviewed. Their lives are way more impacted by friendship than about this, you know, one element of their lives. So at the beginning of your book, you write one of the women, Hannah, is married to a man named Tim. And they go through this long-distance marriage. This is after they've graduated from West Point because your book not only starts there, but 
tracks the characters post-college mm-hmm. and beyond. And you say, you have Hannah realize that the sacrifice, the sacrifice of them living apart, the sacrifice was part of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about what you mean by that. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, anyone that's in a marriage, I think, experiences that day-to-day slog of, you know, kind of, oh, here we are again, eating steak and bag salad. That's (laughs) that's my life, you know? (laughs) And you just kind of go through the motions of that day-to-day living. But for these women that I interviewed that were in dual military marriages, it's an extremely challenging experience. And, you know, their paths are in and out and crisscrossing and the army doesn't necessarily put you in the same place just because you're married. They try often, but sometimes training or deployments can disrupt, you know, those plans. And so I think for Hannah's character, she really felt like those sacrifices that they were making and that time apart made their time together all the more important and all the more sacred. And I think it also helped me realize as I was interviewing these women that there was something really special about being in a team with your spouse Mm -hmm. and feeling like you're both kind of going after a similar mission. Even though in the book, Hannah and Tim are going to different combat zones, they both are experiencing the same thing at the same time. And there's something really special about that in a marriage when you have that common goal. And that I know in my marriage, we've really worked hard at figuring out you know, what is our common goal going to be? Because we don't have, you know, pretty much we have a humdrum life. (laughs) So what are we going to do that really unites us? Because I think that makes a marriage all the more special and it makes it meaningful. But you wrote so beautifully about your marriage and your adoption of your Mm -hmm. son in Marie Claire in that beautiful essay. So I feel like you Mm -hmm. and your husband, I'm just going to jump in and comment on your marriage here. Thank you. Yep. (laughs) I feel like... (laughs) I feel like you do have this common pursuit because you made it through so much together. And Thank obviously you. it's not the military, but it was a war no, of your own. It was own. a war of our own, for sure. And I think we worked at it, you know, like it, we were just talking about this just before we started recording. But it's, marriage is, it is hard work and it is messy and there's a lot of it that people don't see. And thankfully, I think my husband and I, we worked really hard to get through those trenches and figure out how to be a common team. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't something that came naturally. And I think for Hannah and Tim's character, because they had this common purpose and they met at West Point and they both kind of knew what they were getting into, they went into their marriage already knowing they had a common purpose, which Patrick and I just had to find along the way. (laughs) So you had this other scene later in the book, not to jump around here, but you have Mm -hmm. the scene with Avery. So you had these three main girls. Mm -hmm. Hannah is one. Avery has very different relationship to men, to the men in her life and her self-image and everything. So she is in a scene where she's really depressed about things that have happened recently with the guys in her life. And she says to herself, Mm -hmm. it's your fault. This is what you keep getting because this is what you deserve. Mm -hmm. Punishing herself like that. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about Mm -hmm. how you got into the Avery character and and why you felt like that punishment. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Not a good question. Well, no, no, (laughs) you're right. I mean, Hannah and Avery are very different in this book. So for folks who maybe haven't read it yet or are getting ready to pick it up, Hannah is sort of the typical apple pie American girl that meets her college sweetheart and and they go on to have their dual military marriage. And then Avery is this character who is a rebellious homecoming queen, like wanting to prove everyone wrong, doesn't love authority, which is funny that she ends up at a place like West Point. And yeah, has really like a bad pattern of relationships. And, you know— 
you picked out that little quote there from a part in the novel where she's really trying to grapple with why do I keep getting, you know, the same situation handed to me with men and why do I keep experiencing these crummy relationships? And I dated a lot. (laughs) I dated a lot. And I, you know, there's one, well, I got to be careful here. There's one relationship in my past in particular where I just remember all of these red flags happening in the relationship. And I just kept telling myself to squash them. You know, gosh, I remember the guy, I'll tell this one little story. He knew me when I was a little kid and he was like, oh, you were always a little snot. And I just was like, ha ha, that's funny. Let's move on. But it was this red flag where I'm like, you don't, that's mean, actually. Don't say that to me. And only later, once we had broken up, thank goodness, did I realize there were all these red flags about him that I just didn't allow myself to notice because Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be over. I wanted it to work out because I really liked him. I liked the parts of him that weren't crummy, which were only a few of parts. But um, anyway, so I think Avery's character, you know, she's the same way. Like she has these red flags she sees in these guys, but she so desperately wants to be loved. She so desperately wants something to work out and to feel like she has a future with a solid relationship that it's easy for her to kind of push those red flags aside. And at one point in the novel, she has to kind of come face to face with her feelings of self-worthlessness, where she's like realizing maybe one of the reasons why I'm ignoring those red flags is because I think what they're saying is true, which that's a really scary place to be in as a woman to realize I need more, like deserve more than this. And I need to believe that I'm worth more in order to get out of this pattern. And I I wanted that for her character badly (laughs) because she was so, she's an awesome girl. So, yeah. So Danny is the third in this Mm -hmm. Beyond the Point Triumvirate of Powerful Women, Mm -hmm. Um, an African-American former, well, they're all former basketball stars, but she was like head and shoulders above everybody in terms of talent and leadership and everything. And she ends up going because of, I don't want to give anything away, but she ends up taking a job in market research, Mm -hmm. which I found so interesting. So you have Mm -hmm. her going into doing, you know, from West Point and all the training and all the drama to like bathrooms watching men shave, right? which was such a contrast, which I love. But you had this one moment <laughs> and I was like, I feel like this maybe is why you were writing about this. You have this one hmm. subject guy who's looking in the mirror after he's taken a shower and he says, it's not like if I shave really well one day, the hair won't grow back. No matter how good a job I do today, I know I'll look in the mirror tomorrow and have to shave again. And she took that as this sort of gem that hmm. informed the rest of her research. And I took that as part of what the commentary on the military was as well, Hmm. right? Because Mm -hmm. it's one day after another, one battle, one scene, like it's, it like never ends Mm -hmm. and they just have to like keep doing it and keep fighting. It's not like, I mean, individuals can graduate from the military and go on their life. But as a united force, we're constantly fighting back against our enemies. It's true. And I think, That was an interesting storyline. It's real. You know, a girl, one of the women that I interviewed for this novel um, did work for a massive consumer goods company. And part of her job was watching men shower and in the name of research, kind of jotting down where do they keep the shampoo bottles and do they face the shower? Do they face away from the shower? What do they think about while they're getting ready in the morning? And if you think about it, it's an interesting time frame because the men's grooming explosion kind of happened in the last 10 years or so. And so that's what she was 
researching about how do we get men to care more about what they look like. And yeah, I think that quote in particular, we're all constantly fighting the chaos that just comes into life naturally. You know, like my house, every day I clean it and at the end of the day it is a mess, you know, and you can let it be a mess or you just constantly work at keeping the chaos at bay. And I think that that's part of our human experience is learning how to make the most of the space that we have and our, whether that's creatively as a novelist, trying to make things work or in the military, you know, constantly fighting against enemies that would like to, you know, make our country less safe or in the case of that character, (laughs) shaving every day just to kind of keep your performance and your face looking professional. So (laughs) it was a fun, fun to write those scenes for sure. So as a novelist yourself, tell me a little more about your process and how you went about writing this book. You said there were fits and starts, but totally. How did, oh my gosh. Where and when did you write? So many fits. Like, so many paint starts. Paint a picture for me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I started in 2013 and I started with the research process. So I interviewed women a lot like this, mm-hmm. sometimes in person and sometimes over the phone or over Skype. And I started actually by using spiral notebooks and I would just write scenes by hand, which I don't mean to, you know, it's not very glamorous or anything, but it just helped me get things down without editing too much. Mm-hmm. And then once I had those scenes written down by hand, the next day I would go in and type them out and kind of edit as I went in typing them, transcribing them. And that really helped me kind of get the ball rolling on some things. And there are a lot of early scenes from those spiral notebooks that made it into the final copy, which I think is interesting. But I had a lot of trouble with chronology. And at first I was going to do a lot of flashbacks. And there are still some flashbacks in the novel, but for the most part, I tried to keep it chronological because you already have a lot going on with three different points of view. And I wanted it people to be able to follow the storyline. And there was also a fourth character at one point. Okay. Which sad, you know, she's gone. (laughs) Um, And I felt like I needed to get rid of her so that there could be more space Mm -hmm. for these three characters to really come to life. And I write every day from about 8 a.m. to noon. And particularly when I was writing this novel, my husband and I didn't have our son yet. And so I was writing a lot every day and I can't work from home. I'm not very good at that. And so the dishes call my name too loudly. So I have a little coffee shop in my neighborhood called Ugly Mugs. And they're really kind to give me my $2 coffee and not give me the side eye when I'm there (laughs) six hours later. So (laughs) Courtney and Jared are super kind, but writing is, it's crazy. It's hard. And I'm just grateful that I get to be here. And it's really crazy that this novel is finally out in the world. I mean, I remember at one point someone asked what would success look like? And I said, I just want it to live outside my computer. That's, mm-hmm. Even if I just printed out one yep. set FedEx, <laughs> like just to be outside of my computer would be great. And now it's definitely outside my computer. It's amazing. You oh. said something great at lunch when you said you have to listen to which nose, mm. you have to figure out which nose to pay attention to, which ones right. are the right nose. Yes. Hey, tell us. Tell me more about that. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, we were talking, we went to lunch. We were, sorry, we were talking about, I'm not doing a very good job. Let me be more professional. We were at lunch recently and we're discussing feedback Mm -hmm. from editors and agents Mm -hmm. and how in the writing field there is constant rejection, but that's just part of it because it's, they're not necessarily saying it's not good. It just maybe it's not for them. Or maybe it's it's not ready yet. Or maybe it's not ready yet. So part of it, 
Claire was saying is it's important to know which nose to really pay attention to and which to kind of skirt over. Right, which exactly. Which I thought was profound and very inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, I think it's true. You know, everyone knows writing comes with rejection. If you sit down and you've written any number of words, you're already fret with nerves of, is this any good? And then you send it out to an agent or 12, and then you get all these opinions back if you're lucky. And those opinions can be similar or they can be contradictory. And I remember there was an agent I really, really wanted to work with that told me to get rid of the West Point years altogether and only focus on the years after West Point. And I felt like, okay, well, maybe I could do that. But then another agent was like, no, no, leave the West Point years in. And, you know, and then there were other agents that said in big fat, no, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. big fat, no, I'm not interested. And it's hard to know when you're in the midst of all that rejection and opinions you know, whose opinion to listen to and whose opinion to disregard. And I think for me, I've had to learn how to, one, walk through the doors that are open. Mm. So like, don't resist when doors start to open, like follow where there is the least resistance, because that's a good thing to listen to. And then also to trust my own gut when it comes to, you know, which no's feel like they're right and which no's feel like they're just you know, mosquitoes in your ear that you need to kind of let them go their way. And we were talking about, you know, when my agent finally did send Beyond the Point into the world, she had this whole Excel spreadsheet of publishers that she had sent it to and all of their feedback. And sometimes it's hard to even look at that and and see the, you know, people giving their opinions. And, you know, it come, you come to a point where you really have to kind of trust the process and trust your own instincts because it's your work in the end and it's your name on it. And so sometimes you just have to push through and, and disregard people or go back to the drawing board. I mean, this took me four years to write. And like I said, there were a lot of drafts that ended up in the trash can. And even my agent and I worked together for about a year polishing it before it was ready to go to, out to publishers. So it's a lot longer of a process than anyone you know wants to believe, <laughs> myself yeah. included. But now it's coming out with HarperCollins and it's mm-hmm. been optioned as a TV show. That's right. It's so exciting. This is the first time I'm talking <laughs> about it. I know, I know. It's been optioned for television, which is weird and exciting and you know, we'll see what happens. They can go forward and try to make it in a television show or they can sit on the option, but I'm hoping that they don't. And I think it would be great for the big screen, mostly because West Point is such a beautiful visual place. And I hoped I got that across on the page, but it always is so stunning when you see it in real life. So... No, it's cool. the way you wrote it was so sort of cinematic in a way, just like mm. so visual, like I could see it all in my head. Well, you know, someone told me when I was learning how to write, they were saying, try to write the way a director looks at the camera lens. Oh, that's interesting. So like imagine the scene from the director's point of view. And that really unlocked stuff for me because I was able to think about it in terms of like, what is my lens looking at? And is this a close-up on her necklace? Or is this, you know, what are the actual concrete visuals versus being in the character's head a lot? Right. Which I think is a trend right now in a lot of literature to kind of have a lot of internal dialogue, Mm -hmm. but it helped me think about it more cinematically. If this was a scene in a movie, how would it go? And then I started writing from that perspective, which helped me kind of get through some crags. 
I think that's why it was so hard. I, every time I was reading, I like finished reading this on an airplane. Every time one of my kids would like tap me on the shoulder or something, I felt like I had to press pause. I'm like, <laughs> I feel like I'm in the most intense scene of a movie and mm. everyone keeps making me pause it. Like if, <laughs> if there was a screen, you would know not to do this. Jay. Right. Because <laughs> it was, it's really much really like that. But oh. a minute ago, you like jokingly, cro- you know, gave the cross sign to yourself. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to talk about faith a little bit because mm. I feel like faith played a large role in your book. Mm-hmm. You had this character, Wendy, as this older influence who often brought in scripture and and sort of had that influence over the girls' lives as they were navigating all these painful issues. And at one point you wrote, she couldn't understand, this is from Wendy's point of view, she couldn't understand how a person could just end. The more her mind circled around the drain, the more she felt the beginning of a battle, she would someday have to fight with God. But for now, she couldn't, I'm sorry, this was Hannah, right? But mm-hmm, for now, sorry, Hannah. sorry, sorry. Mm-hmm. But for now, she couldn't sleep unless she held onto her cross necklace and prayed, begged for a moment of rest, a moment to forget. Mm-hmm. Were you trying to, have some sort of commentary on God's role in mm-hmm. war or mm-hmm. is this the importance of clinging to faith or mm-hmm. tell me what you're what yeah, you were thinking. So I I'm a person of faith. Uh, you know, my background and my my heart, I believe in in Jesus. And I think there are a lot of people within the military that call themselves Christians or have some kind of faith understanding of their own. And I hope that this book comes across as very realistic and not like preachy or anything like that. But the reality is a lot of the women that I interviewed, faith was a huge driver for why they chose to go to West Point or why they chose to serve our nation because they felt like God had a mission for their life and something that he wanted them to accomplish. And Hannah's character very much believed that and believed that God had a had a plan for her life and that West Point was a part of it. And I think kind of like Hannah, I felt like there was sort of a plan for my life that I was trying to follow and trying to listen to what God might have for me. But the problem with that thinking a lot of times is that when that quote unquote plan that you thought was happening goes awry, it can begin to just topple all of the thoughts that you had about God in the first place. And so that quote that you said about, you know, she felt that there was this coming battle with God, that was very true in my life. And I know it was true in some of the women who I interviewed where maybe they started at West Point very strong in their faith, but after experiencing something like war, your faith, it's so hard to hold together. You know, how do I deal with these things that I've seen in the horror of what's happening around me with this belief that there's a God. And then you go through all of the questions. Well, is there a God? And if there is, what happens after we die? And it's all of those questions that are so, so hard to grapple with, Mm -hmm. but that I think people that are in the military don't get the benefit of skipping out on. Mm -hmm. Like you're young and a lot of 24-year-olds don't have to deal with those questions yet. Right. But these 24-year-olds did. And I appreciated growing up around women and men who weren't shying away from the hard questions in life. And whether they landed on faith or not was beside the point. It was like they were at least dealing with those questions. And I find that really compelling when people are open about what they believe or don't believe. And I love having conversations with people that think differently than I do about those things. And Wendy's character, she's talking to these three women, I think, kind of serves as a place for them to kind of grapple with those questions. So 
Was that like you at West Point in the house, like outside? Was that like your family? Very much so. Yeah. Yes. So <laughs> Wendy's character in the book is this kind of mama hen figure for these girls in college. And I was definitely very much inspired by my mom, who is a very hospitable woman and a great cook. And I didn't write myself into the novel right. at all, but I definitely was there as a child watching from upstairs as my mom was having these conversations with these college girls about, you know, what what's going to happen now that 9-11 has changed the course of our lives. And I think it really made a huge impact on me to see that my mom and my dad were investing in these other kids. Mm-hmm. Even though they had three kids upstairs, they were they had enough space in their lives to care for these other college girls too. And that really impacted me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. <laughs> so what is next for you after this? Tell me. Oh man, so much! Ooh. <laughs> First, the, la- the launch festivities, and right? The TV, and right? You have a new book idea. You're throwing I do, around. I do kind of have a new idea. I'm. I loved writing this novel that's inspired by true stories, and I think that has worked for me. And I want to kind of lean into that. And so I've been interviewing some new potential, you know, friends that that may turn into book context and might turn into some new ideas and. I am a new adoptive mom. My child, our child was born a few years ago in Florida through adoption. We were able to bring him into our family. And so adoption has been really interesting to me. And I've been interviewing some women who have recently reconnected with their adoptive families and their biological families, excuse me. So that is sort of inspiring me right now. And I think you talked about this before that authors don't ever want to jinx their, yes, <laughs> you know, yes, their work. But true. I'm in very early stages with the novel but I'm really having fun. It's different now with the blank page. It feels way more free and exciting than it did in the middle of writing Beyond the Point. It's nice to be at the beginning again. That's good. I feel like other people have said they've had some second book doubt. It sounds oh, like this no. is more freeing for you without the pressure of trying to publish. Exactly. Yeah, I think the first novel... I mean, it was just so much, is this okay? Is this good enough? Will this ever go anywhere? Blah, like, am I wasting my time? And I'm sure I'll have days that feel that way again. But for now, it feels exciting to just look at a big blank page and think, you know, of all the possibilities. So it's kind of fun. And do you have any parting words of advice for aspiring writers? I know you've already given so many throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm definitely not the person to be taking advice from. But of course, I mean, everyone's um, journey is so different. Yeah, that's true. It's so true. I mean, I think one thing that someone taught me along the way was that, you know, I I love Flannery O'Connor. She's Mm -hmm. one of my big influences. And there's another writer in Nashville named Jonathan Rogers who teaches writing courses. And I've taken a few of his courses over the course of the last few years. And There's a story about Flannery O'Connor, and she wrote this character, and one of her readers asked her, hey, why is he wearing a black hat? Did that black hat have some symbolism because he was evil or whatever? And Flannery O'Connor responded and said, no, people in my neighborhood just wear hats, and most of them are black, you know? (laughs) And so what Jonathan taught me through that story was that my job as a writer, and I think our job as writers is not to try to put meaning into something. It's We're not trying to make a successful book or get a TV deal or whatever. We just start, our job is to sit down and write things the way they are, mm. not trying to put some extra layer of meaning into it. 
So that is where I land, you know, now that I'm back to the blank page again, you know, just closing my eyes, imagining the scene and really writing it as it is and not trying to infuse it with something extra or some pizzazz because it's easy in the writing process early on to want it to be, you know, great. You want it to be so good, but in the end, you just need to look at the scene and and write it really concretely. And I think that makes the strongest writing. So yeah. And then, I mean, everyone says this, but just kind of keep going, Mm -hmm. keep going. Like it's so frustrating and there's so many you know, forks in the road and discouragements that come along. But particularly you and I have been talking about things you have working. And so Um, I just want to say, keep going, like always, especially keep going with this podcast because it's so great to listen to. And I think all creative work is, is just so inspiring to me. And this podcast has been really helpful to me over the last couple months, just listening to different authors' advice. So thank you for what you do to bring this to bear. Thank you, Claire. It's so nice. Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for Such having me. <laughs> Today's episode was sponsored by Cereal Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, CerealBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.